Welcome to another special episode of the Supercritical Podcast, where we delve into the fun and often nonsensical way pop culture and nuclear weapons interact. As always, you can find our show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, and YouTube. Pretty much everywhere on the internet you run into our show. Now, we usually spend about one to two hours overanalyzing a movie or a TV show that has plot lines dealing with nuclear weapons. But today, we continue our mini-nuke episode series. Sometimes a film has one or two scenes dealing with nuclear topics, maybe like a quick plot device or some sort of attempt at using nuclear imagery to spruce up the plot. But these circumstances don't warrant a full-size episode, but they still deserve to be overanalyzed in their own way. This is where the mini-nuke episodes come in. My name is Tim Westmeyer, someone who studies nuclear weapons and nuclear strategy for a living. And I don't always watch movies about nuclear weapons, but when I do, and they portray nuclear weapons incorrectly, I start a podcast about it. Right now, I'm back home uh, where I grew up in California on vacation with my family. And since it's difficult to turn off my nitpicking ways, even when I'm on vacation, I decided it was a good time to force my family members to share the burden uh, as my usual co-host can actually have a break. So I'm happy to have my sister Diana here on the podcast. Hello. Thanks for having me, Tim. Great. Well, I'm happy you're here because uh, you're a, a subject matter expert for it today because we uh, were able to go back in time, in a way, and watch the 1999 romantic comedy Blast from the Past, a film which the poster tells us, after 35 years of living in a bomb shelter, Adam Weber is finally able to play outside. This movie is it was pretty fun. It came out in, the, in 1999. And I remember we all as a family somehow saw this movie. I can't remember if we rented it on a VHS or if we went to a movie theater and saw it. But I remember it, it was a, a film that we all saw because it was, I think mom wanted to see it. Probably. <laughs> I don't know if she had a crush on Brendan Fraser or Christopher Walken, but it was, she, she definitely wanted us to watch it. But it was, it's definitely, a, it's a fun movie uh, directed by Hugh Wilson, who is known for writing and directing another one of our favorite movies, the Police Academy series. Ah, uh, Yes, I remember those. Yep. As well as Down Periscope, First Wives Club. And he actually has a, a cameo in this movie as someone named Levy. I don't know who, who he is in the movie, but he has a, a quick scene in there. And it actually has a pretty big cast of people, um, some people who are, were pretty famous and the people who became famous later, or maybe they were just uh, icons of the 1990s. Yeah, I think we could probably start with Brendan Fraser, who was a 1990s heartthrob. I know he was on the cover of some of my teeny bop magazines when I was young. Yeah, whatever happened to him? Poor guy. Uh, he, had, he had a run with those uh, mummy movies. That's and then true. kind of disappeared. But he's great in this movie. And then Alicia Silverstone as uh, Eve. So, yeah, Brendan Fraser's character's name is Adam. And Alicia Silverstone's character is Eve. A little on the nose. Uh, but she is the, the love interest in this film. Uh, a traditional valley girl. Kind of similar to her clueless character. Cher as if. Uh, yep, yep. And Christopher Walken uh, is Kelvin, the crazy-eyed genius who builds a fallout shelter during the Cold War and the Cuban Missile Crisis, and he's shared in that shares the fallout shelter with his wife uh, Sissy Spacek, who plays Helen, who goes a little stir crazy down in the bunker after three decades of uh, living down there. And a couple other cameos, people like Dave Foley, uh, who I remember from Kids of the Hall, uh, the Canadian SNL series, uh, as well as a, a pretty fun cameo in here from Nathan Fillion, who I don't know, think you know. Who I do not know. But uh, people like myself are, are nerds in these kind of categories of movies. Uh, he's from Firefly, a TV, a short-lived TV series that's very popular. Uh, but we recently went through and watched that, and we, we liked it. So it's kind of very fun to see him as pretty much just a bully in this movie. <laughs> um, but this movie, when it came out in 1999, uh, it ha even though we liked it as a household, it had a bit of a mixed reception from critics and moviegoers. 
on a $35 million budget, it only made about $40 million. So it made its budget back, but I don't know if it would be considered a success money-wise. Uh, in terms of the critics, about 58% on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, but Roger Ebert liked it. He gave it three out of four stars, said it was sophisticated and a, an observant film that wears its social commentary lightly but never forgets it. And he liked the fact that it had a premise dealing with a fallout shelter as the uh, the dry, plot driver, which I guess is different than maybe some of the other cliche uh, romantic comedies that have come out in the 1990s. That's true. I would say that. And this movie is very, very 1990s. You have a lot of things that I, I was made a running list. Uh, references to someone being a computer website designer, uh, talking about newfound computers in people's houses. I mean, we got our first computer in the 1990s. A uh, lot of grunge music, a lot of spiked hair. Wait, we can't, we cannot forget to mention REM's It's the End of the World as We Know It. Yep, perfect. One of my favorite nostalgic jams of the 1990s for sure. Very nice. If there was jock jams on this soundtrack, I think that would pretty much cover it. Uh, and then of course the, the all time, uh, sign that this is a 1990s movie, uh, rollerblading, excessive rollerblading. And flannel. Yep. Let's get into the plot discussion of this. So let's, as the guest, I'm going to let you lead the discussion here a okay. little bit. Uh, I'll fill in some random points as I see it, but fair warning to everyone here, we're probably going to spoil everything, although it's a movie from 1999, so if you haven't seen it yet, uh, get get around to it, but you sh- you've had your chance. Good luck finding it, though. <laughs> we had to rent it from a library in like two states away. So essentially, I would first categorize this movie as a love story, but it was also a, a romantic comedy. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's based on a family. The main character, the dad was a professor turned scientist. Yeah, I say he's from Caltech and he started becoming an inventor of many amazing things. He did. And it makes sense because Caltech is located in Pasadena. Oh, okay. Oh, I want to mention another reason why my sister is a subject matter expert is she has spent a lot of time living in Hollywood, in the Valley, and and in Pasadena and all those, that whole area there. So... We, you can you can pin, uh, nitpick all of the geographic details in this movie. <laughs> Let me know if those are correct. Yeah, things have changed a lot since the 1990s down in that area. Some of the same cultural aspects still exist down there. Well, essentially, this movie, uh, it takes place during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Yep. So uh, as everyone probably knows, uh, or maybe not everybody, but the Cuban Missile Crisis was about a 13-day tense negotiation time period uh, in October 1962 where about 185 Soviet tactical nuclear weapons were placed in Cuba uh, to basically defend the island from another U.S. invasion. So that's after Kennedy had his failed Bay of Pigs uh, a couple, 18 months before uh, invasion of Cuba, they asked for some help from the Soviet Union uh, because the Soviet Union and and the Cubans were connected uh, through the communist ideology. And uh, not only there were the tactical nuclear weapons placed there, but six six to eight ss 4 medium-range ballistic missiles were placed in Cuba, which had the potential of reaching Washington, D.C. So this was something right on the top of Americans' mindset. I know our, our, our mom and dad talk about when they were young, they remember uh, this being a very tense time. After a U.S. pilot uh, was shot down over the Cuban airspace, he was flying a, a U-2 spy plane. It really set off the tense moments that we see here in the film. And I think we see in the movie uh, JFK giving a quick speech to the, the Soviet Union telling them to back down. So, so that's a great segue into the plot story. So the main character, Calvin, played by Christopher Walken, was the scientist that really developed this massive fallout shelter in preparation for the Cuban Missile Crisis. Yeah, he thought it was right around the corner. Exactly. And, and he was almost right. 
So uh, during a party that they were holding at their home, that's when JFK had made the announcement that we were going to be attacked. Mm-hmm. He uh, released the party and him and his wife, played by Sissy Spacek, went down into the fallout shelter in preparation. If you want to share what sure. then happened. So unfortunately for the Weber family, the there is an airplane flying overhead, an F-86 Sabre or Saber was flying overhead, had an engine failure. And while the pilot tried to put the plane to sea before they ejected, the plane had a mind of its own and decided to land right on top of the Weber household. All my surface indicators, knock that! Oh Lord, this happened. What was that noise? The locks. The locks. To keep us from trying to leave. There's a radiation half-life. Astronomic blast. Last 35 years. 35 years? Then, after that, it's safe. The co-op. But of course, for some odd reason, they forgot the radio. They forgot the uh, radio, yeah. And they really thought that they were going to be the sole survivors. Yep, they, that's why they decided to name their child Adam. Because okay, he... well, I think we forgot that huge major plot twist mm-hmm. that the wife, Helen, was actually oh, yeah. pregnant before they went down. So She had herself a fallout baby. She did. So... Uh, Minutes into the movie, they're getting situated into their fallout shelter. We're introduced to the complexities of this fallout shelter that Calvin had put together. It was amazing. They had their own grocery store down there. He had created a tank that was ready for fresh fishing. It's not not yeah, not a bad pad that they got created there. It's like a, the Playboy Mansion underground. I don't know if I would say that, uh, but well, I guess one thing that was surprising there is uh, he's a Caltech genius that is an inventor as well, but he invents some way to connect the yacht batteries together to make the battery last 10 years. That's really something you'd want to tell people about ahead of time. And maybe he made his money in this no one decided that it couldn't commercialize it or something, but if it was just that simple, we should invest in, in yacht batteries. Yeah, we should. So essentially, as we all know, it only takes nine months until someone gives birth. So Helen and Calvin gave birth to their son, Adam, uh, when they were down in the fallout shelter. So the story shows Adam growing up, obviously very sheltered, pardon <laughs> the pun, but he learns to dance. He's obviously very polite because he's not exposed to bad language or The Simpsons on TV. But yeah, yeah, just kind of watching reruns of the of uh, Honeymooners, I think it was. And you also see that Adam learns French and German. He's pretty much an all-around guy. It's almost like the fallout shelter was, what are those called when you bury like a time capsule? The right. family fallout shelter is a time capsule for the 1960s in terms of how they, the culture and, and all that. Correct. Almost makes me want to raise my kids someday in a fallout shelter. Very polite. So we obviously see Brendan Fraser's character, Adam, grow up to uh, that point where the after 35 years, it's time for the doors to unlock and release them upstairs. So when that happens, the dad, Calvin, originally goes up, but 
up above the fallout shelter, we've witnessed the 60s and the mm-hmm. 70s and the 80s and to present day in the back then in the 90s. So there's been a lot of turmoil. Obviously, where their home used to reside in Hollywood is now littered with bars and just nightlife and uh, many references of adult bookstores that yep. still do exist down there on La Cienega in Hollywood, by the way. But <laughs> nevertheless, so when the dad goes up to check on things after being very hesitant, thinking that he was going to be the only person still alive after this nuclear war 35 years prior, was shocked to find that there was hookers walking around. And- Not just hookers, uh, mutant hookers that were, this movie's ahead of its time in terms of how people would deal with people that were uh, transgendered perhaps or, or cross-dressing. But yeah, he could basically consider them mutants. Right. Yeah. Uh, someone getting thrown out of a bar, throwing up. So obviously when that's his first exposure to the world after 35 years, he was shocked. He went back underground. And he went back underground. Turns out in, in the midst of everything, uh, Kelvin has a little bit of a heart attack. And so his mother, who really wants to get out of the fallout bunker, sends Adam out to find some medicine and to basically restock their shelter so they can continue to survive. She still thinks things like Holiday Inn is out. It, it, I guess it's still there, but she thinks, you know, go to, a, go to a Holiday Inn. Hopefully one of them is still there. Go to a grocery store. Oh, and don't go to a liquor store, too, to stock up because she, in the course of her fallout shelter days, has uh, hit the cooking sherry pretty hard to make her martinis and everything. But she sends him out with uh, some old money. And most importantly, is a running motif in this movie, baseball cards. Kelvin has a collection of old baseball cards, Mickey Mantle rookie cards, all the ones. Yogi Berra. Yogi Berra. Uh, after 35 years in, in mint condition baseball cards that he uses as currency over the course of the movie. And that's where he meets the, the love interest of the film, right? Alicia Silverstone. Yep. Eve, she's working at a, like a baseball card store. Where Adam tries to sell the card, she realizes he's about to get ripped off, and she's just she's just very nice and decides to help him out in exchange for a four thousand dollar baseball card. But it, she decides to help him out, and then he falls in love with her. Uh, his mother tells him to find a woman who's from Pasadena, so he tries to find out about that. Is, is Pasadena is, is, that a, is that a good thing for your Tinder profile to indicate <laughs> potential future life like lifelong marriages? No, I think it's making reference to the the song from the nineteen sixties, "Little Old Lady from uh. Pasadena." Okay, okay. Don't make me sing it. <laughs> That's a different podcast. Um, <laughs> so so Adam is stuck. He can't find his way home because he knows it's, a, it's next to an adult bookstore. But the, the concept of an address never really worked. I guess they didn't teach him that in, in between uh, German and in physics classes. Um, so yeah, what does he, he works with? He works with Alicia Silverstone who uh, agrees to be his helper, like his like assistant, to try to restock the fallout shelter. She doesn't know what to make of that. She thinks he's kind of cute, but is weird. And she has, she has some, she has some, some emotional issues, right? She, yeah, she definitely. She talks a lot about her baggage, her ex-boyfriends. And I think she's protecting herself from falling in love with somebody else. But at the same time, she, she finds she falls him, in love and, and quickly falls out of love. Right. Fall, fall out of love. Got fall, it. Fall, fall out of love. Yeah. Pun, pun, pun. Well, but the whole time, obviously, Adam is, is just very odd. He hasn't been exposed to interacting with any other humans besides his mom and dad, who are they themselves are still stuck in the 1960s, 60s. So he doesn't really know how to interact with females. He doesn't know how to interact. He's just very polite because that's how his parents right. raised him. His only criteria is that 
one, that they're from Pasadena, and two, that they're not a mutant. Right. <laughs> so, so Eve was very upfront about putting boundaries against Adam, that she was just going to help him, but she was not looking to date him. Mm-hmm. Although Adam was very interested in Eve. So with that, Eve agrees to help Adam find a wife because I think that was Adam's biggest motivation to go up above the fallout shelter because he, they kept showing in specific points in the movie him watching his mom and dad being in love. And you just knew that it ignited those emotions inside him. And he too wanted to w- grow up and get married as well. Sure, so he's 35 years old. <laughs> he was very impressed by the, uh, the woman in the swimsuit outfit in color TV in his hotel rooms. You know, he, he's, he's ready to start dating now. Right. Eve takes Adam out dancing one night at a club off of San Vicente Boulevard in Hollywood. Is that a popular club joint? <laughs> Unfortunately, area? I don't believe it exists anymore. Uh, okay. Well, it's, they say it's Club 40s, which is kind of fun because in the movie, it, it's a family stuck in the 1960s that gets awoken again in the 1990s, but then they go to a club that's themed for the 1940s. So really, this is almost like a time travel movie in a way. Yeah, but I, I get that, but... 1980s clubs are very popular nowadays, so people do like to take it back a few generations. No one likes to dance in their own time period. It's always some other time in the future, in the past. Unless you're doing the Dougie or the the dab or whatever the kids call it these days. I have no idea what that is. Okay, so let's let's keep going. Let's go with some stuff that I do know about. Um, So yeah, so Eve is very jealous because it turns out after all of those dance lessons, uh, Adam's pretty good. He can really cut the rug on the dance floor. Uh, so there's a little bit of that classic cliche 90s where each person's jealous of the other one because Eve uh, finds Nathan Fillion, who is one of her former flames. So it turns out that both Eve and Adam uh, f- have fallen in love with each other. There's a little bit of a brief moment where after Adam tells her the truth about where he's from in the fallout shelter, she doesn't believe him. She calls a psychiatrist to bring I him away. I don't blame her. That, that If some guy told me that, I'd run far away. But it seems like she eventually believes him. She starts to look at his old his hotel room, find some stocks and bear bonds and all of those things from some the 1960s. Some old-fashioned toothpaste, yep. too. So, so if you see toothpaste from a long time ago, either you're just a hoarder or <laughs> you're from the 1960s and, and you can be believed about being in a fallout shelter. Yeah, she finds him. They reconnect. Adam brings Eve back to the fallout shelter to meet the parents. And it turns out, where is Eve from, actually? Her family is from Pasadena. Ooh, that's see, that's a big, that's a big get for the family. And it was funny because she was so excited to tell Adam's mom that she was from Pasadena because she knew that that was mm-hmm. what the mom wanted for Adam. The family, uh, they say, oh, you know what? We're we're, we're gonna we're gonna f- come back for you. Just stay in the bunker for two months, and then we'll bring you out. All of those stocks and bearer bonds now that he bought in the 1960s, IBM, uh, was IBM, a couple other places, uh, are all worth millions and millions and millions of dollars. So they use that to buy the family a nice new home that looks just like the one that they were living in underground, out, but out in the country now. And then they break the news to the family. Turns out there wasn't actually a nuclear war. <laughs> we beat the Russians without a shot being fired. And the dad, I don't think the dad really believes them. No, because the last scene of the movie is the rest of the family inside eating home-cooked pot roast like they made in the 1960s panned out to the dad starting to measure his next fallout shelter in the backyard of his new home. Always be prepared. Um, so that's the movie. And I, again, we'll get into the what have we thought about the film. But in these episodes, we only really pinpoint one or two things to get really super critical about. I have three things. 
two really short and one that we can get into a little bit of an extended dialogue about. And I'm pretty excited about talking talking about these issues. So first, the F-86 Sabre or Sabre that flies uh, into the house. It's interesting little bit of history about the plane and what its links are to the Cuban Missile Crisis. So this plane, uh, the F-86, and this is what the... Uh, the what that airplane looks like to me uh, was actually the first swept wing designed fighter interceptor fighter bomber made for the United States to actually engage with Soviet MiGs uh, in dogfights at very high speeds during the Korean War. So it was a very popular plane by the United States in the Korean War. It was very popular throughout the Western world. Uh, almost 10,000 of them were made across their, vari- their, their variants. And actually it was used up until 1994 by the Bolivian Air Force, although we stopped using it uh, in 1956 and we, pl- we replaced it with another plane with a cool name, the F-100 Super Sabre. Yeah. Yeah. And so we flew that partially in the, in, during the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962. Not sure exactly why the F-86 was the one in the movie, um, but there is some nuclear connections to that. Uh, the F-86F could actually carry a nuclear weapon, and this is a little bit of history for this. It could carry a 1,200-pound MK-12 bomb, and this had a yield of about 12 kilotons, so a relatively small bomb, similar to the ones that were used against Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which were about 12 to 20 uh, kilotons. But the way this plane worked, if you're curious, it would be used in low-altitude bombing runs. And when it was ready to hit its target, it would pull up to start a really slow loop backwards. So you can imagine the plane basically doing like a front flip. And at at the peak of its uh, loop, it would drop the bomb to basically lob it in a certain direction. And then the plane would quickly turn around so it would get away from the bomb as it was about about to explode. So that's how they used to be able to do that. Essentially, it's like an underhand toss up in the air as the plane tries to get away. So it doesn't just drop the bomb because it's not that fast to be able to get away. But the other interesting connection is uh, Rudolf Anderson, the, the pilot that we mentioned earlier who was shot down uh, in his U-2 spy plane uh, over Cuban airspace, during the Korean War, he flew the F-86 pretty, pretty heavily. So even his own uh, monument, because he, he died when he was shot down, uh, his monument in South Carolina, they couldn't get a U-2 plane to put up there, but he flew the F-86, so his his monument in, in Greenville, South Carolina, is actually a, a reproduction or a, a display of an F-86. Have you ever seen this in South Carolina? I actually have. Uh, we, we went and saw it. Uh, I used to work on a campaign uh, that we did a lot of trips down to South Carolina, so I've seen that. Uh, but it was, yeah, it's pretty cool. I didn't know what it was, and someone pointed it out once we went to go look at it. Very cool. Um, the second point is this idea of why Kelvin was so convinced that 35 years was the the date he had to set the locks for and all of that. I would just want to stress that is a completely arbitrary number. It's just because the people who wrote the movie wanted it to take place in present day in the 1990s. So they basically did the math, 1999 (laughs) minus 1962, about 35 years to make it a contemporary film. Um, But as we'll get into later on, the concepts of having to stay under a fallout shelter for 35 years, it's not how long... That actually takes. So let's get into the most of the discussion I really want to talk about. So hopefully you're interested in this too, uh, our listeners and my sister, because I'm the one that's going to have to stay with her if she's bored for the next couple of days, uh, or, or, or basically about fallout shelters. So let's talk about that. Um, the basic theory behind a fallout shelter is to put radiation blocking material between radiation emitting sources and you and your loved ones so that it would basically give you enough time for the radioactive fallout particles to decay to the point where it's safe enough to travel outside the bunker, clean up and rebuild civilization, which is usually assumed to not be 35 years, but about about four days to two weeks. Pretty big difference there, right? Right. 
Civil defense, this is the, this is the term we use for this. This is the broad category of planning and strategies uh, to help populations survive a nuclear attack uh, or either a, another military attack or natural disasters. Um, this was big part of the U.S. nuclear deterrent strategy. If you can convince your enemy that your own population would be able to survive a nuclear war, it might make the other side a lot less likely to start one and to believe you what you mean business and that you're willing to go through with war because you'll survive it. You know, you can, can kind of see that in terms of how you want to, if you want to start a fight in a club, say you're at club 40s and someone's <laughs> coming up to you and they, they spill some, uh, some, some drink on you. If you're willing to think that you can win that fight and you can survive being punched a few times in your face, the other side might be a little bit less willing to start a fight. That's um, true. My guess. But the flip side of that is, is that you still need to convince your own people that nuclear war is survivable. You have to be able to convince them that that outcome is an acceptable loss should conflict escalate to that point. And fallout shelters were a big part part of that messaging campaign. And it's not just fallout shelters in terms of civil defense, it included things like emergency response, stockpiling reserves of food and oil, uh, post-war recovery efforts, and another thing like city evacuations, basically whether or not we could evacuate whole cities in the event of war to make those cities a lot less uh, attractive as targets. So now, brother, do you really think that fallout shelters were something that the government what used or really thought was going to be a useful tool? Or do you think it was a marketing scheme to stimulate the economy? What are mm. you? Well, I mean, I, it certainly was pretty big uh, construction efforts. Uh, I'll get to it in that in a little bit, but they tried to co-locate places so that you could use the fallout shelters during peacetime. So they tried to be able to, not only was it a public works project, but it was supposed to be used for other parts of civic life. I believe the government thought that fallout shelters were going to play a role in terms of survival, but I think it was probably oversold in terms of the number of people that would be able to get to a shelter because you don't really have much time. Uh, nowadays, we have about 30 minutes from a missile, say it's launched from Russia or China, and how long it takes to get to the United States. So back then, you had a little bit more time, but in terms of when people would find out about it, they wouldn't have a lot of time to get home to their shelter. So if they weren't already at home hosting a dinner party, they'd have to rush home to get into their shelter before the fallout started to fall. So I think it was probably oversold in terms of the number of people that would be able to get to either community shelter or their own individual home shelter. And let's not forget that let's say you're in Pasadena and you're trying to get to Hollywood, that 101 freeway uh. is always crowded. So you're going to need about two to three hours just to go about the 11 miles. Yeah, I don't think the Soviets were too um, willing to, 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 deal, to let you have those extra hours. And maybe, they, maybe they don't have that kind of traffic in Moscow. Um, but I will just mention, too, the co very concept of civil defense. In some groups, people, anti-nuclear activists, it was a controversial idea. Because if you believed you could survive a nuclear attack, this argument says, you might be more willing to start one. You might be more willing to be a little more trigger happy if you'd be able to survive in, in more reasonable numbers. So the idea was, don't have fallout shelters. If we start a war, we have to deal with the consequences of it, much make us less likely to do it. So the very idea of fallout shelters, there's a moral choice to it as well, not just a strategic one. During World War II and World War I, uh, the origin of fallout shelters can be found in many countries like in Europe that relied on bomb shelters to wait out aerial bombing. Once airplanes were at the technological advanced level uh, of being able to reach civilians in their homes, that was a pretty big change in warfare. Usually armies would fight each other in battlefields and people, maybe eventually a town would be reached by an army, but it would take a while. 
and people might be able to escape at that point, but not the idea of you having to live in your house and worrying about sirens going off and, and bombs falling on top of you. So you can really see after um, the Germany bombed London with their V-2 rockets, the Allied forces bombing Dresden, Berlin and Hamburg, the U.S. firebombing Japan, add in the fear of chemical warfare into the mix. And you can really see why having a place to hide made sense to people at the time. And especially once the, and if you see at the beginning of this movie, some newspapers spiraling towards the screen yes. saying that the Russians have developed the bomb. Uh, after, in 1949, when they basically broke the U.S. monopoly over nuclear weapons, fears about Russian first strike uh, in the 1950s very much increased. And people were, were pretty worried about that concept. Um, and as a result, the U.S. government in the late 1950s and early 1960s heavily pushed the idea of fallout shelters, both large community ones co-located in schools and civic centers, as I mentioned before, but as well as family shelters at your own home. And I'll, I'll mention right now, uh, one of the things I did this week was my, my friend Steve, who was the best man at my wedding, his parents bought a home in, 19, in the 1990s that already had a fallout shelter built in. So I actually went over, and I'll post some of those pictures in our show notes and on, on, our, on our website, which is being developed right now, uh, where you can see some of the pictures of, of what a shelter like that looks like. But it was pretty fun to go down there and to see it in person after just reading reading about them for the last couple of days. So where was the door to the fallout shelter located? Sure. It was just, it was, out, it was outside. It was separate from the house. So similar to this movie, uh, I believe the shelter in, in the movie was in the garage. Right. Separate from the house. Uh, this one, it's outside by their pool. It's actually now covered by a, a playground for their grandkids nice. to be able to play. But if you go just over the side of this fence, you have this thing which looks a lot like a coffin door. Uh, you have to open up. It's very heavy. And it, there were very much rusted out. Uh, I think these were much nicer fallout shelter for them when they first moved in in the 1990s and the early 2000s. Now it's very much rusted down, which is why you have to maintain these things. And you can't just let them let them uh, decay unless you're not really worried too much about having to survive in, in one of those fallout shelters. <laughs> when we went down there, it was basically it was became storage for the for toys. And that's uh, what was going to be my clothes. next question. That's Sounds what like they were great using it for. storage for me. Very good storage uh very uh muggy down there and we'll go through a little bit later on about the ventilation that you need for it uh but lots of cobwebs so i had to fight off quite a bit of spiders not radioactive spiders just regular old underground spiders sounds like a great place to store your 1990s toys like tamagotchis pretty and much furbies I my beanie babies that will one day be worth just as much as those baseball cards <laughs> Maybe, maybe. You keep telling yourself that. We actually found a, a large Millennium Falcon toy from from Star Wars. I almost wanted to have uh, just to be able to play with that downstairs in the, in the Fallout shelter. Um, <laughs> millions of informational pamphlets were given out to Americans, uh, which detailed how one could be able to survive a nuclear attack and how to build a Fallout shelter to do so. And I actually have a couple of copies of that here. I have a 1961 edition of a booklet called Fallout Protection what to know and what to do about nuclear attacks. So I'll give this to Diana to look at and I'll post some pictures of it. Uh, but I was able to find a copy of this. It was issued by the Office of Civil Defense. And at the time, Robert McNamara was the, was the Secretary of Defense. And the, the book promised information on how to survive an attack and to live for your country's future. Since, quote, fallout shelters and related preparations could greatly reduce the number of casualties during war. Of course, there's no page in there about what to do if you get accidentally stuck on a fallout shelter for 35 years and to avoid going crazy. Um, but it was basically details about what to do uh, to be able to survive. And it also talked a lot about why community shelters were a good idea, because oftentimes you're away from your home running errands. 
and that's when the pesky Russians decide to attack. Uh, community shelters are really good because it gives space for thousands of other people to survive with food and, and water and other types of protection. And it's, there's a benefit to that, too, because you have a better chance of finding someone there who is has skilled, either the doctor or an engineer, to be able to survive, actually, the war itself and recovery efforts afterwards. Um, so these shelters could be used during peacetime as a civic center where, and again, I'm, I'm referencing the 1960s pamphlet here, where Boy Scouts and church groups can meet and where teenagers can mingle with their soda machines and jute boxes. So that, that gets us what they thought teenagers did back then. <laughs> There's also a famous uh, civil defense propaganda film, which I know a lot of people have heard about, the, the Duck and Cover series. I don't know if you've, if you've heard about this, this pop I culture reference. Not. Oh, good. Well, this is fun. Um, so this was a part of this propaganda education effort. It tells a story of a talking and walking turtle who had to worry about an annoying monkey who kept throwing dynamite at him and what to do about the dynamite-throwing monkey. And so as the song tells us, There was a turtle by the name of Bert And Bert the turtle was very alert When danger threatened him, he never got hurt So a very educational. There was a famous cover story in Life magazine in 1961, and the headline was, How Do You Survive Fallout? Included pictures and detailed plans about how to build your own fallout shelter. So you asked me earlier about kind of what the government's purpose behind this was. JFK actually had a letter, an open letter that he wrote in this Life magazine, which was very popular at the time. It's basically the, the Twitter and YouTube and um, Snapchat. Snapchat. It's all of those things rolled into one. That's what Life Magazine was for people. So JFK urges us in the magazine, and I apologize for the JFK impression, but he says, In these dangerous days, both the objects of security in our country and the peace of our world are threatened. We must prepare for all eventualities. The ability to survive coupled with the will to do so, therefore, are essential to our country. Ouch, that was bad. Um, but in another kind of fun point here, before I get into more details, in the 1970s, one guy, this guy named Jerry Henderson, tried to start a trend in home building where you would put your entire home underground. Uh, benefits uh, touted included better heating and AC bills since you relied on the Earth's insulation. So you can, wouldn't have to heat or cool as much. Makes sense. Yeah. We are, we're at heat wave right now in California, so actually wouldn't be a bad idea to get underground. That's the truth. Another benefit included was privacy away from the prying eyes of your neighbors. Get underground. You don't have to worry about what your neighbors are thinking about what you're doing. Creating artificial weather and light, whatever you want, which is I know Calvin mentions in the movie about if you want the, the weather to be a little bit nicer. Also, supposedly reduces your allergy and asthma problems because there aren't any real plants down there. Uh, and also, they say, pretty good acoustics for listening to music. Because you get the bouncing off the walls and everything like that. Uh, oh, and also it's impervious to nuclear fallout. It's another one of those added benefits. He, <laughs> he tried to promote these under, underground homes at the World's Fair and actually built a prototype uh, of his home in, in Las Vegas. And so I'm actually going to Las Vegas tomorrow, and I know the address of where this is. I'm going to try to see if I can find this home and see if I can get down there. But I don't, I don't think they allow it anymore. It was sold in 2013 to some crazy group, and I don't think they'll let us see, go down there anymore. Brother, you're the only person that I know that would drive out to Vegas and go to a fallout <laughs> shelter. 
Yeah, uh, well, yeah, it's a little bit of history and, and to be fun, but um, I'll link to some pictures of this home and I'll show Diana uh, a little bit later about some what, what these home looks like, but they looked a lot like the movie. But this is a very uh, rare example of what fallout shelters look like. What they actually tended to look like is what well, I'll describe right now. Before I can get into the details of what makes a good fallout shelter, I want to quickly talk to, to you all about what do we expect? What should you expect when expecting a nuclear attack? So assuming a five megaton yield weapon, which is a pretty big bomb, but it's one designed for destroying a pretty large city. And if it was detonated near the ground, there's a couple things you can expect. And this is Apology for being a little dark here, but it gives you the details of what the purpose of a shelter is. You First, you, you would see prompt radiation. So this is gamma radiation and neutrons, which would kill anything within one to two miles in line of sight. You shouldn't worry about that, though, because if you're close enough to die from prompt radiation, you're probably going to be worried more about the fireball, a giant fireball that lasts one minute. The heat wave would kill basically any unprotected person up to 10 miles away. Buildings. Most buildings are would either be destroyed or knocked over within two miles of the ground zero by a shockwave, which is generated by wind and heat, heated air coming from the center of the detonation. And this starts traveling at 2000 miles per hour at the beginning and dissipates a little bit later on. Yeah, but living here in Southern California, we're pretty used to shockwaves in the ground like our earthquakes. Yeah, earthquakes. Uh, this is a little bit more than that, but yeah, it's, it, it's preparing. I think duck and cover is probably a better idea during an earthquake than a nuclear bomb attack. This is true. You would also expect fires about five to 10 miles out because the flash of the heat can start fires very, very far away, um, sometimes instantly due to those flashes. And then you also have to worry about firestorms, the idea, the theory of multiple fires getting together because of the way the wind is very strong. And you get these escalating fires that places cities where their things are very densely packed and it's they're not fire safe. You would see a lot of giant fires. Also, 10 miles away, you're still not safe. Buildings are probably standing, but the shockwave would blast out windows and cause fires to start by when gas lines and electricity transmission lines would get knocked over. So I know you work a little bit in, in the power industry. Imagine all the things that you work for basically being knocked over by wind and what kind of fires would get started from that. It would be pretty scary. Absolutely. Um, which is why they tell you to lie flat on the ground, covering your neck and hands and staying away from windows for about five minutes after the shockwave once comes. 50 miles out, most buildings would probably be okay, but after five minutes, there would be another, there'd be the shockwave that would come through and, and blow out those windows. And early fallout would start to be a problem about 50 miles out in about three to four hours. So what do you mean by fallout? So, so fallout basically are particles of debris and dirt that have mixed with radioactive products that are in the mushroom cloud and in the fireball. So this could either be parts of the building that were swept up into the air or destroyed or knocked over, or really if this was a ground burst so there's two types of ways you can basic two types of ways that nuclear bombs are detonated either close to the ground or high up into the air which are called air bursts you do an air burst most of the time against cities which are pretty easy to knock over and you imagine if you have like a sphere uh, you have a little dot in the sphere of fire coming out from that you want that to be covering the widest area possible and to do that you have to put the starting point pretty high up in the air. If you put it low to the ground, most of the force goes straight into the ground and it doesn't expand out as far. But that's what you want to do if you want to hit targets that are hardened, like a missile silo or military base, something you really want to destroy. But fallout, if you can imagine, essentially it takes all of that debris and the dirt in the ground and vaporizes it into dust particles that float up into the air. And much like rain, once they get heavy enough, they fall back down to the earth 
but they've attached themselves. They become radioactive sources for things like gamma radiation, alpha particles, beta particles, things like that. Got it. That's what fallout really is. Uh, so you have that's what you have to be able to worry about um, after a nuclear bomb occurs. If you're near ground zero, pretty if you're within say five, within five miles, you have about a 30 minute window, and you'll start to see those early, very dangerous radiation start to fall down. Um, there's different types of radiation. I think this is a really important thing for people to recognize. Um, radiation essentially is the spontaneous decay of atoms, which releases energy. Basically, it can kill healthy tissue or it can disrupt normal cell growth and cause things like cancer and other mutations. So that's what, how radiation hurts. But there's different types of radiation. It's, and it's important to recognize those differences. There's alpha radiation, which are types of radiation that can actually be blocked by most uh, materials like clothes and, and very thin walls and your skin, unless it's directly on top of it. If you're exposed to alpha radiation, all you have to do is essentially just wash wash off the dirt and, 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 and change your clothes. So that's not really too too much to be worried about except if you inhale it if you consume it in food if you if a cow eats some radioactive grass and it has alpha particles and you drink the milk from that that's very dangerous got it so that's where you worry about that and then beta radiation um these can be blocked by thin aluminum or wood or, or water and it really is a concern if it's exposed directly to your skin but likely what's going to happen, it's going to fall on top of your fallout chart or wherever you're at. And then essentially 360 degrees line of sight, that radiation gets emitted. Now it get, will get blocked by things like wood or aluminum sheeting and things like that. So that really what you don't have to worry about. The bad stuff is gamma radiation. This is the, this is the, the, the real bad stuff. Uh, this can penetrate most materials up to a certain thickness. And fallout shelters are essentially designed to block the radiation put out by these particles until their radioactive elements have decayed to the point of being uh, enough to be exposed to for short periods of time, whether to, you know, go out and clean up everything or to essentially get away from the area that, that, that it's there. And a decent shelter should be able to reduce your danger from fallout by a factor of nearly 100 compared to being unprotected. And it's important to recognize that radiation dangers exist on a spectrum. It's not simply a matter of we're not being exposed to radiation now and fallout causes radiation. It's more considered in terms of lifetime doses and daily doses and things like that. You're allowed to have radiation all the time. So you, you, I, know, I know you fly a lot for work and travel. Anytime you go up in an airplane, it's the equivalent, uh, if you have a long flight, of receiving an x-ray because of how much higher you are in close to cosmic radiation that normally gets bounced off of the our atmosphere, con concrete and other construction equipment, um, certain types of rocks and ore produce radioactive elements. Simply eating a banana even gives you a little bit of spontaneous fission. So you have to worry about radiation everywhere, but that's why you should understand that it's about limits and, and, and pacing yourself. Like all good things, uh, it's all about moderation. With all those scientific details we just learned, what makes a good fallout shelter? According to my 1961 pamphlet, so we keep it close to what people thought about at the time with this movie, I guess Calvin thought about it in 1962, you can build a very simple fallout shelter in the early 1960s for about $150 of building in building materials, which today would be worth about $1,200 in, today, in today's money. So not, not too bad for the this peace of mind for your family. So Tim, could you imagine if fallout shelters became a thing today 
and that they would definitely be sold at Costco, not necessarily in bulk, but the Kirkland brand of fallout out shelters. Yeah, they would probably sell it right next to the samples of uh, of Costco Kirkland brand uh, salsa or or hot pockets or something like that. And coffins, they sell coffins now too. Oh, well, that's quite an industry there. But um, even more so, can you imagine the market that would be in pimping out your fallout shelter? I'd watch that reality show. Can you even imagine Paris Hilton's fallout shelter? It'd be pretty nice with Louis Vuitton walls and Gucci carpet. Well, according to a website that I looked at, uh, undergroundbombshelter.com, this is a place that can sell you a, a fallout shelter prefabricated for 5000 to 10000 or tens of tens of thousands if you're willing to make it pretty fancy, much like Paris Hilton, I imagine, would. But there's elements of a good fallout shelter, despite how many things you bling up about it, and the type in Blast from the Past is very overkill. So we want to keep that, and you can compare, keep that in mind as we compare them to what makes a good shelter. Most shelters are much smaller, designed for people to live inside for no longer than two weeks. When after that two weeks, the radiation levels will be reduced to about one percent of their initial point. And there's really not much you can do if you happen to be living uh, near a government headquarter, a military base, a missile silo, a state capital, where I live in Washington D.C., places where. They make pretty nice targets. If you're near and live in one of those, that's not a fallout shelter is not going to help you. You're going to you're going to bite the dust, unfortunately. But if you live a little bit further out in that kind of two mile, three mile range, you worry about fallout. So what makes a good shelter? According to the Department of Homeland Security, there are three basic factors to protect yourself. Distance, which is putting certain materials between you and the radiation. Shielding which is the heavier and more dense materials, uh, thick walls, concrete bricks, earth. The more you have of that, the better. And to reduce gamma radiation by a factor of 1,000, which is considered to be a standard measurement of shelter effectiveness, you either need four inches of lead, which we'd imagine. Fallout shelter, lead, Superman can't see through lead. Seems like a pretty good thing to have. Right. Or three feet of packed soil. That would protect you from most gamma radiation. 24 inches of concrete or 5,000 feet of air. So you can imagine if you have any of those things or even better, combining those shields together, that's really what you need for an effective fallout shelter. So that's why you see a lot of fallout shelters being buried is because those three feet of soil is what you would need to protect yourself from, from gamma radiation. So you imagine the fallout falls on top to the ground and then it sits there for two weeks, and by that, by the time those two weeks have gone up, all of the the radiation is reduced in terms of its decay. Those half life you may have heard of, it keeps reducing by fifty percent. It's reached the point where it's okay. So Got this it. that would protect you. You don't need to live in Fort Knox. You don't need to live inside of the you know Scrooge McDuck's uh, bunker where he keeps all of his coins. You don't need that. You just need to be underground about three feet, and that will generally protect you. Do you know if any of these protections are better than the others? There there are. Uh, they're all pretty much the same. Some of them are more practical than others. 5,000 feet of air is pretty difficult to produce in a fallout shelter. Um, four inches of lead would be hard as a construction challenge. But if you combine, say, two inches of lead or some thick aluminum and then some sand and then come concrete, you can build yourself a pretty effective shelter when you combine all of those factors together. Got it. And the other Homeland Security recommendation is time in terms of a factor. The more that the time you have before you have to go back outside, the more uh, the radioactive intensity will pretty much rapidly decline. And if you have a basement, you can shelter its fallout protection by hiding, say, under a heavy desk. I know, Dad, in our garage, we have a really heavy uh, workbench. Right. If you have that in your basement, you can use it as a starting point. You put some... Uh, 
you put some concrete blocks on the top or on the side or maybe some sandbags that'll give you some protection because sand is packed earth and and gives you a little bit of chance to survive there so you can you can retrofit your existing uh basement the important theory is is that you keep it small you don't have a gigantic shelter like kelvin does in his movie because that's more area to protect Right. But maybe I, he's a Caltech genius with lots of money from inventing yacht battery based uh, energy technology. Uh, but if you don't have that kind of money or skill, you want to keep it small. Another solution is if you have a basement, you can create what's called a lean to. So that's basically where you have, say, a sheet of uh, aluminum and you put that up against, you lean it up against and you create like a little teepee with your wall and your floor. And then you cover that uh, lean to up with sand or concrete or some sort of mixture like that. And then you basically go inside, take all your supplies and put the wall where you walked into, cover that with sandbags. That, if you live in for two weeks, will be a pretty effective shelter. That sounds like the Walmart of fallout shelters to me. Yep. Or if you don't have a lot of time, you know, you're, you're, you're stuck outside and you, and you don't have a lot of time. Um, above ground shelters are okay if you're not too worried about the shockwave knocking your shelter over. You just have to have things like double concrete walls of concrete blocks filled with earth or gravel. And there's different tricks that you can do. And I'll post some links to the, the Life magazine article uh, from 1961. It has some pretty detailed blueprints if you're interested in seeing how they used to build these things. Also, if you're stuck without a fallout shelter, if you're outside, say, in an office complex, uh, an above-ground office building can provide you with some fallout protection. The important thing is you don't go to the top floor near the roof because that's really close to where the fallout will gather. Basically, imagine if you're in a place where it's snowing and you have all that snowfall, where will snow gather? It'll gather on the roof, it'll gather on the on balconies and ledges, it'll gather on the ground floor. Stay away from those areas. You want to be in the middle of the building with a lot of walls and open space between you and where the fallout, your essentially dust particles are, that will protect you for a given period of time. You may not have food and water, um, but at least you'll be protected from, from the fallout itself. Uh, I know my wife, Jennifer, her school had a fallout shelter areas and stairwells that were marked as, as fallout shelters. Oh, wow. That's interesting. Yeah. Occasionally, you'll find uh, fallout signs from, from the past. I know our, one of our old apartments in Alexandria, Virginia, had when we were just randomly walking, it was next to some restaurant, uh, an old fallout sign. So I bet that's usually what that means is you're in a stairwell away from, 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 from uh, where the outside and the radiation could be. The most common types of shelter is a steel pipe buried under three feet of earth. In 1961, that would cost about $950 or the equivalent of $7,600 today. Oh, wow. So that shelter that I visited at Steve's parents' house was essentially a buried steel pipe underground with an entrance uh, to the outside. So that's, that was pretty much the standard family shelter that you would bury in your backyard. Important little tips here. Uh, the doorways or entrances need to be built at 45 degree angles. So you imagine you have that steel pipe and you have your entrance. You want to be able to turn a corner to be able to get into your living area. And the reason is, is that gamma radiation is line of sight. So say some gamma radiation falls on top of your, your door and it gets through the door. It'll travel in a straight line down your hallway, but it doesn't tend to bounce off of the walls. It's not like a light particle or, you know, throwing a bouncy ball or anything down the, down the steps. It'll go in line of sight. So you just stay away from the door and the entrance and you're safe. You want to worry about ventilation. Got to have air circulate. You don't want to have be uh, breathing pretty bad air down there. But most standard fallout shelters don't need complicated ventilation systems. Essentially just a pipe with a couple bends um, with go straight up out up to the ground and you have like a little hood on top with a very simple air filter. The air can get in, but the fallout doesn't travel. It falls to the ground. 
Uh, so that usually is, is pretty well protected. So if you imagine you see on top of like a roof, you see a ventilation, like a pipe that goes up and it has like a little pointy hat on top. That's you'll see a couple of those in the pictures that I'll show you about Steve's shelter. That's what they had for their ventilation. Yeah, well, what was interesting in Blast from the Past, it didn't have any of that ventilation. No, I don't know where they got their air from. But uh, that's one thing that is curious because if he did have ventilation coming from the outside, he needs – so if you have like a, a crank or if you have a, 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 a something that's connected to a battery, you will need more advanced filters to protect yourself because you're drawing air in that can suck up fallout. But he's apparently never noticed any sort of fallout particles or any sort of radioactive detection equipment that should have been downstairs with the radio to notice whether or not something happened. The movie tries to hide some of those things. It says, oh, all of my outside detection equipment got destroyed in the blast. Oh, I forgot my radio. Yeah, how all convenient. The, yeah, I know. He's, he's, he's so, it's like his obsession, but he drops the ball when it counts the most. <laughs> uh, the only other things I'll mention here is, is that Sanitation and vermin control is very important, and not only while you're down there, but basically while you maintain the fallout shelter. You want to make sure things don't get moldy and spiders and rats don't get down there. Basically during peacetime, if you use it for, say, storing uh, clothes or extra extra food, you want to make sure all that stuff is, is protected and safe. And the other interesting debate is whether or not you'd want to have your fallout shelter's entrance in your house or not, or keep it separate from your house like for for example what would you think is a good spot to have it would you rather have it in your in your kitchen with an entrance or have it in your in your garage outside i would say probably my kitchen just because i'm not in my garage a whole lot the problem with having it in your kitchen um is is that if your house collapses you can't get out if your house catches on fire all of your oxygen which is in your bunker gets sucked up in the fire and you can't breathe anymore or carbon monoxide but if you're not worried about your house falling down say you're really far away it's actually helpful because in case you forget something like a radio you can go up really quickly and come back down and decontaminate yourself so that's a real debate but whether or not you keep your fallout shelter separate from your house like for example steve's fallout shelter was maybe about 15 to 20 feet away from their house so if their house collapsed it wouldn't collapse on the entrance or any of their air vents yeah, too bad they don't uh, teach us these things in school nowadays. Well, they probably taught them uh, way back then, but they don't have to do that anymore. Christopher Walken shelter was pretty advanced, too, because it had a back elevator in addition to their, their entrance. It's pretty fancy, although I don't know how that elevator still worked after 35 years. The elevator in my in my office always breaks down. I know. So I don't know how they got that, but that's, that's, that's a, an engineering challenge that he would, probably was able to solve. Uh, fallout shelters in other countries. Every country has their own flavor of fallout shelter. The Soviet Union built most of their community shelters in their subway system. They have these massive subway systems in Moscow. They essentially created it so that if there was a crisis, if there was a, a, fall, a, a nuclear war, they would seal off the entrances of these places and people would, li would live underground. Uh, Switzerland and Sweden think of these things as, as part of their central uh, defense, their national defense, in case there was a war. Sweden is usually tries to stay neutral in conflicts like that, but they still know that in a nuclear war that's around the world, they're going to need to protect themselves. So fallout shelters are a very important part of, of, of their defense culture. So you see a lot of shelters there. I think one of them even, um, I think it was either Switzerland, I think it was Switzerland had protection for up to 114% of their population. But so what, before we finish up here, I want to ask Diana, 
what are some, say, the top five things you'd want to have in your fallout shelter? Oh, man. So it's like, like, like a desert island, what you want to bring on desert island. But what do you want to bring down your fallout shelter? To survive or just to, to survive boredom, too? So what are the top five things you'd want to bring? I can't say that this was one of the questions that they asked on my eHarmony profile. <laughs> But you know, funny that you asked me this question because it was definitely something I was contemplating as I was watching the movie. Number one, I don't think I could live without my subscription to People Magazine. Okay. Specifically the crossword puzzle. So I would want at least a two week supply of People Magazine so that I could uh, at least get caught up to what's been happening okay. in the world. Crosswords. That's number one. Number two would definitely be my hair straightener. I can't live without it. Well, I hope it's battery powered because yeah. you're probably going to run out of electricity. Uh, not if I use my yacht batteries. Perfect. Get, oh, you, I forgot about all your yacht battery stockpiles. Yeah. <laughs> uh, number three, can I bring my dog? Please. Because I don't think Cohen would survive. He can't even survive being outside. Your little Maltese. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. So you got you got a Maltese. You got a hair straightener. You got some people crosswords. Um. Goodness. I would say probably um, because we're going to be down there for who knows how long. Probably uh, my most comfy pair of pajamas. Those are pretty good to have. You, yeah. want, you want to maintain a nice comfort is important because exactly. it's, it's very stressful to be put down there. Exactly. Okay. And the last thing I would say is probably a Costco-sized bottle of vodka. Go out in style. Exactly. So those are those are five pretty good things. But let's let's go through what are considered to be the most essential goods to be self-sustaining for up to two weeks. Number one, radio. Pretty standard AM, FM radio or a ham radio or a shortwave to listen for information about the attack and civil defense alerts. You need to be able to learn what type of bomb detonated in your area, how, how it was de detonated, the yield. Those are the type of things you want to know because then they'll tell you how long you need to be underground. That's true. Um, do not leave your radio outside of your shelter, dummy. Second thing is radiation detection equipment. There's a lot of ones you can buy that are portable. They're very helpful to know if the loud noise you heard above you was a nuclear bomb, a plane crash, or just your loud neighbors. <laughs> you want to be able to, get, to be able to know that. Uh, extra batteries for all these things because you can't expect for electricity to be working uh, for quite a long time. Uh, you want to have your trusty civil defense instruction booklet, a pocket knife, which is just very handy to have around, your, your uh, Swiss Army knife. You want to have a flashlight and candles, uh, water is probably the most essential thing you can have down there. About a quart of water a day is needed for you to be able to survive. You can only last about four days without water before you bite the dust. Usually, most of these civil defense booklets recommend an allowance of a gallon for comfort under hot conditions like the heat wave we have right now in California or for things like cleaning up. One of the first things you should do in a nuclear attack or any sort of natural disaster is to fill up your bathtub with water. Fill up as many buckets as you can with water because one of the first things to happen uh, after a couple, of, a couple of hours is the water pressure goes away. So you won't be able to get the water in the wells. I know, I think Calvin mentioned he had access to a well. Um, I don't know where that water is because we're in a drought right now in California. <laughs> he must he must have. That's why we're in a drought. It's because he had 35 years of water. But you want to make sure you have water. Food, you want to have about 10,000 calories per person for about two weeks. That'll keep you in, in at least a survivable state. You want to keep those in cans or airtight containers where fallout um, radioactive particles can get into. You want to have a can and a bottle opener to get to that food. You know, imagine things like... First aid kits, a toilet with ventilation and, and toilet paper, pretty helpful. You want to have soap 
which is really important to be able to wash off fallout. And everyone always talks about iodine tablets. I know after the Fukushima nuclear disaster, there was a, a run on iodine tablets. And people think iodine tablets are like radiation pills. Well, they'll be helpful in some way. What they do is they they help to prevent iodine-131 from sitting in your thyroid, uh, which usually happens is iodine-131, will, which is a radioactive uh, source. It will go into your thyroid, replace other types of uh, particles that aren't radioactive there, and that's how you get thyroid cancer. This helps to prevent that, but it doesn't help you with gamma radiation, which is really the thing you should worry about. So, Tim, I agree with your list. There's only one that I would actually challenge you on. Hmm. So I don't know if you know this, but I'm a member of my local community CERT team, which is the Community Emergency Response Team. Oh, okay. So very similar to this list of items to have in your fallout shelter. I've been trained on what to put in your emergency packet. And uh, I what didn't know to... this. You really are a, a subject matter expert for us. Okay. No. <laughs> no, but one thing that uh, caught my eye on this list was the candles. Hmm. So uh, this is actually the latest not to do item to put in, uh, to keep in your home or put in your survival kit. Because what happens is a candle is obviously a source of fire. Hmm. And if you light a candle for light purposes, and if there's any sort of gas leakage that happens in the event of a disaster, Hmm. and I imagine that this would also happen uh, during a nuclear um, crisis, the candles would uh, ignite and, and catch your fallout shelter on fire. Yikes. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm glad these things have been updated since 19, the 1960s. <laughs> That's a good point. Okay. Well, so, then just lots of extra batteries for your flashlight then. Okay. One more tip that sure. I'll add about the flashlights. It's good to turn your batteries upside down. Keep them inside your flashlight because otherwise, if you keep them upright, it's still going to use and the batteries are ultimately going to corrode. Ah, but if okay. you flip the batteries upside down, then you still have easy access to them. So in the event that you need to use your flashlight... Hmm. In the dark, you're able to open up your flashlight, flip the batteries, and start using your flashlight. So. See, these are these are great tips to have. So you've survived nuclear fallout. What do you do next? Some of the things I recommend afterwards, which the, the, the movie doesn't really get into because uh, they just assume 35 years, everything's fine. Well, you want to first try to figure out what kind of community is left to organize and to be able to help in terms of response. You want to worry about whether or not other attacks might occur in the future. So you think maybe you're not actually already out of the woods yet. So take all your keep an assessment of how much goods you may have left because you may have to go back down into the bunker. Uh, you want to clean up smaller areas uh, outside of the, the shelter to live. So you want to start small and then expand out. You want to do things like wash your streets and your walls and your roofs with either fire hoses or high pressure uh, nozzles if you can get those things to work. Really what you need to do is you need to take all those fallout particles, push them into one area and, and keep that area quarantined. quarantined off. Yes, you can maybe drain into the gutters and wash into a certain area and then just block that off. Maybe they'll bury it. Uh, you want to make sure you can help people and animals that may have radiation sickness. And one of the things they recommend is our chickens and eggs would be a good source of food. If long as the chickens were covered from radioactive fallout and their food was protected, those would be good things just to live off of for, for the next couple of weeks. And I've got a lot of tips that I haven't mentioned today. So I think I'll sprinkle them in future episodes randomly uh, so to keep you guys listening um, and also protected in the event of the future. So here's where we are today. Civil defense in the United States, that mission is no longer handled by a separate Office of Civil Defense. It's handled by FEMA and the Department of Homeland Security. After 9-11, the mission of civil defense has focused much more on how to respond to terrorism, whether it be nuclear terrorism with a dirty bomb, 
chemical or biological terrorism or another type of, of terrorist attack instead of nuclear war. That's really where the focus of civil defense is today. And one way to think about that is the old logo of civil defense was, was very iconic. It was the letters C and D put together. Uh, they both letters were red to form essentially a circle. You imagine a C and a D put together forms a circle on top of a white triangle on a blue disc. This this type of symbol was the international sign of protection. The new logo is an E and an M, which stands for emergency management, and has three stars that are supposed to represent the three levels of, of uh, response from the local, state, and federal responses. And it's got some arcs and some other things. And the words public safety, public trust. Very modern, but not nearly as iconic as the old symbol. So I don't know, Diana, as, as a designer yourself or if someone is interested in these kind of things, which which logo would you like rather see? Well, to be honest, the old one looks like something on the Looney Tunes, like ac yeah. acne. And uh, the EM one today is just very cheesy. So I think they should hire me to create their new logo. Good. Well, hopefully your, your uh, CERT has a better logo than than this one. This is true. Um, okay, so let's move from that to our parking lot movie discussion. This is when movie's over, you're outside of the parking lot chatting about it. What do you think about this movie? Did you enjoy it? I, I did. I'm someone that just likes to really take a movie at face value. I'm, I'm a girl, so anything with romance is going to swoon me. It was cute. A lot of parts that were just a little exaggerative. I didn't really like uh, Eve's character, I thought Alicia Silverstone, yeah. she was a little bratty, but maybe that was the normal attitude back in the 1990s. It could be. Yeah, we weren't really of age in the 90s. I was still maybe grade school, freshman year of high school during that time period for me, and you were you're about two years younger. Um, so maybe we, went, we didn't come of age to experience that, but it, she was very she was very mopey. In terms of my interest for it... Um, it, the movie like I mentioned earlier, the Adam and Eve names were a little bit too on the nose. Yeah, um, I kind of so a lot of those cliches that were in there, and also that that didn't really make any sense to me because Eve wasn't in the Fallout Shelter. Imagine Adam and Eve would be from the Fallout Shelter, and they would go outside together. Right. Um, she's more like the the snake that tempts Adam with the Tree of Knowledge. Uh, that's more of what she would be in this metaphor, but that's a different podcast altogether. Um, I did think it was interesting that there was a running motif in this story about it really it was about as much about American the decay of American society over those years than it was about fallout decay. I think this was was a pretty strong theme for this. I definitely agree with that. I think it it highlighted uh, some of the benefits of homeschooling and keeping mm -hmm. you, again don't want to use this pun but keeping your children sheltered from the outside culture because obviously Adam's character grew up very polite. Uh, calling everyone a lady, didn't know curse words, took everything at face value, knew his dictionary, knew other languages. So it, like you said, once you're exposed to the outside world that is obviously very corrupt, mm -hmm. it's going to change your personality and, and change the way that you treat others. Uh, Brendan Fraser is pretty famous for a lot of his fish out of water stories. My other famous one is Encino Man. Encino Man. Yep, Encino yeah. Man. So with a lot of those, those are, it's a really interesting contrast, but um, I don't really know what, if it's a message at the end, other than just maybe don't, don't be uh, a nineties uh, burner stoner like that guy in the movie who starts a cult yeah. <laughs> because of his life. That was another disarray. underlining message in the story. I thought yeah. that was really funny. It was, it was pretty funny. Um, but let's, okay. So what we do at the end of the podcast is we always like to rank the movie, but we always change the rating system up each time. How you would rate this movie one 
to five. But in this movie, how would you rate it out of one to five bottles of cooking cherry? One <laughs> bottle means uh, this movie is weak sauce. It's not really a good time. Uh, or five bottles, meaning that's a pretty good time. You, you can you can enjoy yourself for that. How many bottles of cooking cherry would you give it, Diana? I'm a tough critic, so I'm going to say two bottles of, of sherry. Ouch. Maybe when you were younger, when we first saw it, it was a little higher, didn't hold up, or just you think that was what you would have liked it back then, too? I, I think now that I'm older and I ask a lot more questions and things make a lot more sense, to me, there was just a lot of, like, that would have never happened moments. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I could see that. I think the movie starts out pretty strong, even with the nonsense for me about being in a, a bunker for 35 years, which is really blows my mind as a tech, as a person who is interested in nuclear weapons. Uh, that never really made any sense to me. But basically about halfway through the movie, it starts to fall into those traditional cliche romantic comedies from the 90s uh, about people trying to make each other jealous and, and coming together. And that it didn't work for me about halfway through the movie. I, I would probably agree. I would say probably about 2.5 bottles of cooking cherry. Enough to get you going, but eventually the buzz wears off and you're not really enjoying it so much. <laughs> and you're, you wish you just had cooking cherry to make up a meal to get the taste of it out of your mouth. But if you're interested in more uh, materials or books based on these subjects, I'll recommend a couple things and I'll post some links to this in our show notes. But I'd really recommend Todd Strassler's fiction book, uh, which is simply called Fallout, where you have a family during the Cuban Missile Crisis actually have to seek shelter uh, in a fallout bunker because unlike Blast from the Past, this is a counter-history story where there was actually a nuclear war that would that occurred during the Cuban Missile Crisis. You see the family have to deal with angry neighbors that try to break into the fallout shelter. There's internal family conflict dynamics. Imagine us and on all these long road trips in our minivan. Imagine we're all stuck in a fallout shelter and kind of the things you have to deal with, water and food shortages, injuries, and things like that. It's a young adult story, but it still works pretty well and entertaining for older readers. So I'd recommend that. Uh, Also, Melvin Matthew Jr.'s 2011 book, Duck and Cover, with the subtitle of Civil Defense, Images in Film and Television from the Cold War to 9-11. It's not a perfect book, but it's a very good collection of details um, from from the time period. And you can see pictures and how uh, the American public perceived things through film and television, which is a good way we all learn from things, or maybe a bad way we learn from things. But you can understand how people thought about civil defense. And also, I'll post some links and copies of old civil defense pamphlets, uh, and also those photos of me braving uh, spiders and and dust and mold and all that to go check out an old fallout shelter. Thanks, Diana, very much for being on the show. I'm oh, glad you're thank able you for having to come me. along. Uh, and I hope you've been enjoying. I don't know what you think of. Um, I know I know mom and dad listen to a lot of my podcasts, but I don't know if you listen to. I'll put you on the spot. Have you been enjoying them? I do. Good. <laughs> well, I know some people that work in this field, uh, their parents and family don't really understand what they do. So I'm glad that I have the support of all of you. Thanks for listening to another Mini Nuke episode of the Super Critical Podcast. If you have any suggestions for future episodes or want to tell us what we got wrong, we want to hear from you still. You can reach us on Twitter, at Nuclear Podcast, on Facebook, and email the old-fashioned way, supercriticalpodcast at gmail.com. And if you've enjoyed this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you would consider dropping a review or subscribing on iTunes. This really helps us grow the show and get new listeners, and we want to be able to hear from you as well. So until next time, this has been Tim Westmeyer. And Diana. And remember, if it's pop culture and radioactive, we're bound to get super critical about it. Have a good one. 